Well, this morning we're going to begin by turning in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Glad you came to church this morning, aren't you? Revelation chapter 21. Uh, If you're visiting with us, what you need to know is that we typically just work straight through books of the Bible. That's our normal practice. We're currently making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been doing so for a number of weeks and have quite a, a long journey still ahead of us in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, but we've come across a topic that we, we feel like we need to address, um, especially with all these bright young things in front of me. thought it was a perfect morning to talk about marriage and divorce. Um, so we, we are going to be making our way throughout the entire Bible and looking at this topic of marriage and divorce. Before we, we read, we just uh, do so in such a way that we, we understand just how heart heartaching, heartbreaking this, this issue can be, how many of us have been impacted, whether directly or indirectly, through uh, these issues. And so we, we want to be gracious. There is a, a bit of law that will come this morning, but we hope just a tremendous amount of grace. And, and really the goal is that we will all leave here uh, not just burdened by our failures, but in awe of the Savior. That's always the goal, and especially the goal this morning, that we'd be in awe of Jesus and His amazing grace to us. So with that in mind, and Revelation 21 opened, uh, I'd like to read the first four verses. We'll pray and then begin. This is what the Apostle John says towards the end of Revelation 21, 1-4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you are the famous one, and we come and we worship you and praise you, and it's our desire this morning that Jesus would be made even more famous in our midst because of our time together. Lord, as we come to Your Word and as we examine this issue of marriage and divorce, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would help us not only to understand, but to embrace and to apply the things that You say to us. We pray that we would leave here more in awe of Jesus than when we came in. And we need Your help for all these things, and so we ask for it now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Myths that really happened. That was the way that J.R.R. Tolkien described Christianity to his young and unbelieving friend at the time, C.S. Lewis. You know J.R.R. Tolkien as the author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and uh, C.S. Lewis as the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia. At one, uh, one occasion as Tolkien and Lewis were talking about the faith, Tolkien asked Lewis, why are you so impressed with fairy tales and legends and myths, but when you come to the gospel, you reject it? Later, after Lewis had come to faith in Jesus, he recounted the way in which he began to see that all fairy tales, all stories that have ever been written, really they they tap into this longing of the human heart that only the story that's told, the true story of the Bible that's told, can fulfill. 
when you and I come across a fairy tale, perhaps we're reading to our children, and we come across that phrase at the end of the story, and they all lived happily ever after, most of us know enough by experience to roll our eyes, maybe to sigh, to bow our heads in despair, because we understand that in our own lives, no matter how good our lives seem to be, very rarely can they be described as lives that are characterized by the phrase, they all lived happily ever after. Life is difficult. More pointedly for our topic this morning, marriage is difficult. But the story of the Bible, a story that I wonder if you've ever thought about, begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding. The storyline of the Bible tells us how each of us, regardless if we're married, single, divorced, remarried, might have the phrase, they all lived happily ever after, written over the stories of our lives. It can happen. It does happen. And it happens all because of Jesus. Now, as we make our way through this issue of marriage and divorce, we really are going to go cover to cover through the Bible. We're calling this talk Happily Ever After, A Biblical Theology of Marriage and Divorce. And by biblical theology, we mean what does the Bible as a whole, the story of the Bible, have to tell us about marriage and divorce? And we're going to ask three questions to help us understand the way that the story is framed out. The first question that we're going to ask is, what is marriage? seems to me that years ago we could have just assumed, almost, the answer to that question. Nowadays, not so much. We have to ask the question, what is marriage? Secondly, we have to ask the question, how has it all gone wrong? Again, marriage is difficult, regardless if you're happily married or not. So how has it all gone wrong? And then thirdly and finally, we're going to ask the question, how is it all going to be made right? What is marriage? How has it gone wrong? And how will it be made right? A biblical theology of marriage. So we're going to just dive right in. What is marriage? I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn uh, in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. And what we're going to do uh, throughout the course of, of this first point is we're going to begin to develop a definition of marriage from a variety of places in the Bible, and once we put them all together, we'll come up with our final answer. What is marriage? Genesis 2, 18 to 24. I'm going to give you a portion of our definition of marriage. According to Genesis 2, marriage is a lifelong monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. Unapologetically, what is marriage? Marriage is a lifelong monogamous relationship between exactly one man and one woman. I want you to look with me at Genesis 2 and beginning in verse 18. Moses writes, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last 
is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, here's the important piece. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Imagine this. You are picking up the book of Genesis for the first time. You've never read the Bible. Maybe that is you. As you read Genesis 1, this account of creation, and then Genesis 2, a complementary account of creation. You read throughout chapter 1 this brilliant and stunning cadence over and over and over again, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then you come to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, and the first thing that you read is, it is not good. What the writer is doing is he's painting this portrait that as God is creating heaven and earth and filling the earth with his creation, as he comes to make man and woman in his image and he creates Adam, he says the one thing that stands as being not good over all of creation is that Adam has no wife. There's not a helper fit for him. That's not a derogatory term. That's to say that there's no one that corresponds to him. There's no one who's fit for him. And so the Lord begins in breakneck speed to remedy this issue. We're told that he brings all the animals before Adam and Adam names them. And sort of the underlying subtext is that as God brings forth all of these creatures before Adam, Adam is to become exasperated by the reality that there is no one that corresponds to him. And then, in verse 22, the Lord creates from Adam's rib a woman named Eve. And understand this, like a proud father who's walking his daughter down the aisle, he brings her before Adam, and Adam is completely undone. He says, this at last. She is the one I've been looking for. If you don't believe in love at first sight, you're not reading your Bible. He's completely undone overawed by Eve. He immediately breaks out into poem or song, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is officiate weddings. And I'm a little strange, a little quirky. I acknowledge that. But one of my favorite things to do when I'm officiating a wedding is when the doors fling open and the bride is revealed and all of the, the sanctuary, the auditorium stands and stares at the bride, I look directly at the man next to me. Because there is something in that moment that is so special, so emotional, about seeing a man having this, this at last moment play out in his own life right before my eyes. I have seen men who are as tough as nails weep like small children when they see their wives. I have seen men smile ear to ear throughout the entirety of the marriage ceremony because this at last is the one that I've been looking for. Marriage is a tremendous gift from the Lord. It's ordained by God. It's designed by God. But the most important thing in this passage, friends, is that it's defined by God. It's defined by Him. And it's defined in this passage as a lifelong monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. Look at the passage, verse 24. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast. That's lifelong. The language there is clinging. He shall cling. He shall be attached to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. That is monogamous. In other words, the two have become one. There are only two. And they have now become one. It's a lifelong monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. Now, it doesn't matter what culture you live in. This isn't only relevant for 21st century America. It was just as relevant in the first century when Jesus was being uh, challenged by the Pharisees, as we'll see later. A sort of attempt to redefine the lines of what marriage and divorce really should be. But I want you to consider this fact, that regardless of how we try to define marriage, this side of the fall, in God's original creation account, He defines marriage once and for all and for all time. One man, one woman, lifelong, monogamous. In the UK, there's a a man by the name of N.T. Wright. He's an Anglican uh, bishop, and he was once asked about legislation that was being introduced to redefine marriage. And he said in a way that only he can, he's a brilliant man, that N.T. Wright, he says, when anybody... Pressure groups, governments, civilization suddenly change the meaning of key words like marriage. You really should watch out. I find that sort of stuff chilling, the attempt to change the ideology within a culture by changing the language. The word marriage for thousands of years and cross-culturally has meant man and woman. Genesis 2, what is marriage? Lifelong, monogamous, one man, one woman, but that's not all. We're going to add another word to our definition, and that word is covenant. If you'd like to turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, you don't have to. It's the last book in the Old Testament, right before the New Testament, so it's a little bit easier to find than some of the other prophets. But in Malachi chapter 2, what's happening is the Lord through His prophet is bringing charges against His sinful people. And He says in chapter 2, verse 13, This second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. He says, you come with tears in your eyes because I don't receive your worship. But really, the question is, why don't I receive your worship? And He gives the answer, verse 14. But you say, why does He not? Because, the prophet says, the Lord has witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by, here's our word, covenant. Now there's a lot to be said here in this passage about divorce. I want to focus on marriage. She is your wife by covenant. That is an important term. That is a Bible term. Every one of the Lord's dealings with His people is a covenant dealing, a covenant relationship. It is a relationship that is bound by promise, by oath, by commitment, by sacrifice, and confirmed with a sign. So why then the vows in a marriage ceremony? Why is it that when a man or a woman come together, a man and woman come together in the marriage ceremony, they say, I take thee to be my wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, rich or poor, sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. Why do we say that? 
Is that just some of the trappings of the marriage ceremony? No. What that is, is before God and these witnesses, a man and a woman vowing, promising, committing. It's me and you. Lifelong. Monogamous. Forever. Marriage does not dissolve when we fall out of love. Marriage does not dissolve when times get tough. Marriage is strengthened, sustained, and fueled by the promises that a man or a woman makes before the Lord and their friends and family to stick it out. It's a covenant. But thirdly and finally, we're going to add another word, and that word is mystery. Because I'm afraid that you're going to misunderstand me. I'm afraid that you're going to misunderstand my passion for defining marriage as simply another Baptist minister trying to score points in a a so-called culture war. And that couldn't be further from the truth. The reason that Christians are passionate about the right definition of marriage is that it is a gospel issue. Ephesians 5, as Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and writing about the roles and the responsibilities of husband and wife after an extended discussion of submission and sacrifice, he finally says, verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's Genesis 2. But I want you to notice what he says afterwards. In verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I have noticed with my son that anytime he is pretending with his toys and somehow the the sort of world that he's crafted in his mind involves a married man and woman, their relationship always mirrors mine and Kelly's. The husband is always a, a, a pastor. Uh, the wife is always way out of his league. And sort of that's the starting point from which Henry conceives of marriage. And it's as if his little like pretend world is a signpost, a marker that points to a greater reality, my marriage to Kelly. And in the same way, Paul says that the Marriage between one man and one woman points to a greater reality, a mystery, and that is the relationship between Jesus Christ and His people. This is a gospel issue where Jesus is the perfect husband who loves His bride unconditionally, without fail. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. I will lay down my life for you. I will die for you. I will bleed for you. I will forgive you. I will stick with you through thick and thin. That's what marriage proclaims. And that's why the definition is so important. See, loved ones, marriage has the the opportunity, the, the possibility of either proclaiming or denying the most important reality in the cosmos. Jesus Christ and His undying love for His bride. So what is marriage? Tim Keller writes in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, in, uh, again, a, a brilliant way that only he can write, that the secret of marriage is that the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another, that when God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. What is marriage? Marriage is the lifelong, monogamous, covenant relationship between one man, one woman, which points to the mystery of Christ and his church. There you have it. 
for thousands and thousands of years. That is what marriage has meant. But the question that we have to ask is, how does it all go wrong? Because I know, as well as you know, that this sounds very idealistic. I mean, how many of our marriages really even begin to sort of approximate this ideal? None. They're difficult. We fight. We argue. We break one another's hearts. It's difficult. So how does it all go wrong? I want a word, sin. Sin. And God has so ordered in His Word things so that in certain and very few extreme circumstances, marriages may permissibly be ended. How does it all go wrong? Sin. Sometimes it goes tragically wrong. Does the Bible ever allow for a man or a woman to divorce their spouse? The answer that I will give you is an unequivocal yes. And I want to point you to Matthew chapter 19 just to begin our discussion. As far as I can understand it, in my reading of the entire Bible, I can see two reasons, two exceptions for a marriage being terminated in divorce. The first of these reasons is given in Matthew 19 as Jesus is tested by the Pharisees. That's a very important word, verse 3, Matthew 19. The Pharisees came and tested him. They're trying to trick him, trap him, confuse him, get him to say something that they can hold against him. And so you'll notice in Matthew 19, verse 3, it says that when the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The moon's a balloon, Jesus. Any cause. Can we divorce for any reason at all? Now what lies behind this is Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Moses does not command but allows in the case in the ESV of some indecency for a marriage to be terminated in divorce. The conservative rabbis would say he's talking about some sort of sexual sin. The more liberal guys who really like the good party would say you could divorce your wife if you weren't satisfied with her cooking. That would be some indecency. Can you imagine that? How many marriages would survive under that kind of circumstance? And so Jesus is asked, can we, can we go with the, the crazy people here and say, hey, it's your world. Divorce away. What Jesus says in verse 4 is, have you not read? Now listen, how important is the Bible in the way that Jesus understands even the most controversial current events of his day? He does not say, well, what does the cultural milieu say? What does your college professor say? What does your neighbor say? He says, have you not read? Did you open up the Bible? Did you search the scriptures? What does the Bible say? And here's what the Pharisees are doing, which is the tactic of scoffers and naysayers down throughout the ages is they're trying to get Jesus to deny what is said in Genesis by way of what's said in Deuteronomy. Oh, look, look, Jesus, it seems like there's a contradiction here. And Jesus won't have anything to do with it. He says, look, haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's Genesis 2 again. It is foundational. It cannot be changed. It cannot be abolished. It cannot be overturned. This is the way God has designed things. 
Jesus also says Moses never commanded divorce. He allowed divorce because of hardness of heart. In other words, he understands that sin will sometimes be so bad that the way forward may often be divorce. Look at what Jesus says. Here's the exception. Verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Sexual immorality, the Greek word porneia, it's where we get our word pornography. First century Greek, the word meant unlawful sexual intercourse, prostitution, unchastity, and fornication. This is what I love about the Bible. Sometimes the application is so clear that the difficulty isn't knowing how it applies, the difficulty isn't actually applying it. Here's the application. Jesus says, unless there has been adultery, sexual, physical adultery, I say to you, no divorce. I mean, you're reasonable people. You have Matthew 19 open. You look at what Jesus says and tell me if that's not what he said. He says, I say to you, except for sexual immorality, divorce is tantamount to committing adultery. Now, if you're sitting here and you go, boy, that's tough. Boy, that's strict. You're in great company because Jesus' first followers have the same thought. Verse 10, holy smokes, they say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, I'd rather not even get married in the first place. And Jesus says, you said it, man, not me. Yeah, it is tough. Yeah, it is strict. But this is what the Bible says. Second exception, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We have an exception where divorce is not commanded, but allowable, it is not sinful to be divorced if you are the victim of adultery. 1 Corinthians 7, we have not sexual immorality, but separation. 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is, is just absolutely fantastic. Here are the people in Corinth. They're coming to faith in Jesus. They have questions now for Paul. How do I live now as a Christian? We want to know how relevant the Bible is. Their question in chapter 7, verse 1 is, now that I've become a Christian and I've trusted in Jesus, what does that mean for my sex life? The question is, is, if I've come to faith in Jesus and my spouse hasn't, should I stop having sex with them? And Paul's answer is no. His answer throughout the chapter is, verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. In other words, do what you are doing. Don't sin. But if you're a slave, be a slave. If you're married to an unbeliever, stay married to an unbeliever. If you can get your freedom, get your freedom, but live the life that you've been called to. Now, as it relates to divorce, verse 12, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Don't get tangled up in that. All that Paul's doing here is saying, I'm not quoting Jesus. This is my own apostolic authority. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Here we go. Verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, koritso means to separate by departing from someone, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Here's what Paul says. If you're a Christian man or woman, you're married to a non-Christian man or woman. Unbeliever, Paul says. We'll use John O. Not yet a believer. And the person leaves. Brother or sister, you're free. It is no sin. 
you may be remarried. If an unbeliever separates from you, you're free. And here's where we address the the really sticky and naughty issue of abuse. Because in a room this size, I'm, I'm almost positive that someone has been a victim of domestic violence or abuse. You think, gosh, the Bible doesn't seem like it. Let me say this. There is a way to separate without leaving the house. This might be an issue of soreness for you, but I kind of think of Antonio Brown here, right? He's on the team, but he's quit the team. He's not really with the team, but he's still got the jersey. He's a stealer, but he's not really a stealer. And in the same way, and in a far more serious way, there are ways to separate and not really be a husband or a wife to your spouse while remaining in the home. And I think the number one example of this is domestic violence. But when any situation which causes someone to have to separate for their own safety forces them to separate, yeah, that's a, that's a separation by an unbeliever in my book. There is never any excuse, I want to be as clear as possible, there's never any excuse ever for domestic violence. There's no cowardly hiding behind theology that says the husband is supposed to be the leader of the house and the wife is supposed to submit. That's satanic to use that to, to the benefit of you as a domestic abuser. If you are experiencing domestic violence as a man or even as a, as a woman or even as a man, here's what you do. You call the police. You call the church. You get the elders involved. We will help you. We will walk with you. We will pay if we have to for a hotel room for your safety. There is no excuse. You see the beauty of God's design in all of this, that He allows, He allows when the covenant relationship has absolutely been trampled on because of adultery or abuse or separation, He allows the clarity of conscience to say, I'm, I'm free. And we've got to be careful here that we don't make you know, this, this the umbrella for no-fault divorce. That's not what we're saying. We're saying in very extreme circumstances, pastorally, and with biblical wisdom, we say, brother or sister, you're free. How's it all gone wrong? It's gone wrong because of sin. But the, the best question that we can ask, and the question that we want to finish on is, how will it all be made right? We said at the beginning that this whole marriage deal, it's a gospel issue. And so for those of us who are here this morning and we've had a failing marriage, an unhappy marriage, we've been the victim of adultery, we've committed adultery, we've been the victim of domestic violence and all of this messiness that's part and parcel of a broken world, how? How is this going to be made right? Because it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of happily ever after in that. And again, we turn to Revelation 21. What a beautiful passage this is. What a relevant and powerful passage this is for you and for me. In fact, for all of us here this morning as John closes the entire storyline of the Bible with a wedding. Verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw, he says, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Verse 2, I saw the holy city. Now this is not a place, it's a people, right? You can talk about Newcastle, geographically, or you could talk about Newcastle demographically, the people. 
That's what John's talking about. I saw the people, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Here it is. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Mart Lloyd-Jones, Welsh preacher, once did a wedding in which the bride came down the aisle wearing a bit of shabby clothing. She wasn't wearing a white wedding dress. She was wearing sort of a blue, sort of almost like executive suit. And she stood down there in the front and Lloyd-Jones had no idea that she was the bride because she wasn't adorned. But make no mistake, here in this passage, the Apostle John is absolutely and abundantly clear. There will be no mistake on that day who the bride is. Because she will be adorned in the righteousness, the perfection, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as she comes down from heaven and Jesus Himself looks at you and me if we have trusted in Him and He looks in our eyes and He says, my darling, you are perfect. Beautiful. Faultless. Regardless of what your marriage on earth has looked like, regardless of how difficult your singleness has been, regardless of the suffering that you have had to endure in this life, you are beautiful because I have made you beautiful. This is the story of the Gospel. That Jesus takes His faithless, faulty bride and in an instant makes her fit for Him. All by grace, all through faith, for everyone who believes. You're here this morning and you find yourself in the midst of a very successful and happy marriage. Praise God for that. But what I think the Bible would say to you is don't idolize your marriage. Don't idolize it. It's a gift from the Lord, no, no doubt. But understand this, your spouse was never created to fulfill you or to ultimately satisfy you. No spouse can bear that burden. And if you find yourself in a marriage where you feel like you can't bear that burden, the good news is you weren't designed to. You were not created to fulfill anyone's desire. You were created to find your desires fulfilled in the perfect husband who laid down his life for his bride. So if you're in a really happy marriage, praise God, but don't let today shadow the glory of that day. And you will be eternally married to the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine there's a brother or sister in here this morning who's found themselves in the midst of a really difficult marriage. Either the perpetrator or some of the sins that we've talked about or the victim. Let me encourage you with this. And through faith in Jesus on this day, look at the way that the Apostle John lays this out. Verse 4. What will He do with all of your suffering? all of your marital difficulties, all of your sin, what is the Lord Jesus Christ going to do? Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear. Every tear. There will be no more mourning, nor crying, or pain. 
There'll be no more sin or sadness or death because the former things have passed away. All the difficulty, all the sin of this life, forgotten. Eyes up. Watch down the aisle. That day's coming. For those of you who are single, I think the church owes you an apology. For far too long, we have made those who are following Jesus as a single man or woman feel inferior, incomplete, insignificant, second class. Ever thought about this, that Jesus, who is the most human, human, the most passionate, the most joy-filled, the most truly alive human being to ever live, was never married on earth? Think about that. Single brother and sister, you have absolutely everything you will ever need for this life and for the life to come in the person of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of your desires. He is the satisfier of your soul. He is the one who makes you complete. So take heart. Might be the Lord's design for you that you never see a wedding day in this life. But believe me, you'll have a really killer wedding in the next. Here's the Bible's storyline of marriage. Created, ordained, defined by God, spoiled by sinful men and women, and yet redeemed when Jesus returns for His bride. This is the only way that you and I, when we come to the end of our lives, might have those amazing words penned the end of our stories, they all live happily ever after. And trust in Jesus. Would you confess your sins, your failures to Him? Would you tell Him you'd like to be part of His bride? He's never, ever turned down that request. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how clear and how explicit, how helpful, how corrective, how Christ-centered your word is. Lord, there has been a lot of information this morning. Each of us comes in to this room with our own experience of marriage and divorce, either in our own lives or the lives of our friends or parents, whoever it might be. Again, Lord, it's our prayer that more than anything, the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted, that He would be exalted as the one who affirms your definition of marriage, establishes it, that He and His apostles allow for few exceptions, that more than anything, that we would leave here understanding if we have been imperfect as husbands or wives, and we have, that Jesus is the perfect husband who lays down his life lovingly, sacrificially for his bride and who will one day come adorning us in his righteousness and will make all things new. Lord, help us to trust in Jesus, we pray. Amen.